You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Why are we in Habakkuk? Right? You could probably go to church for decades almost anywhere in the United States and never ever have a message from this three-chapter odd prophetic book. And we're going to have four messages from this. More than any... I've never preached on Habakkuk before. No. It's, look, I've been preaching a long time, but not, you know. Uh, there's, there's, I haven't preached on the Song of Solomon either, by the way, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a few others, um, but um, it may seem like why would you take the time to do that now? I think this book is so relevant to our day and age, and our time right now. It is worth going through. It really is. And there are some famous lines from this book that you might not even recognize. Uh, one that uh, Carl will be next week bringing up, which is the just shall live by faith. It comes up in the book of Romans again and again. That is in Habakkuk 2, or Habakkuk 2, or Habakkuk 2, or I don't know. Take, take your pick. But it's already there. And it's one of the famous lines of the Reformation, of the whole change, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. So um, we're going to look at that from a different angle than just pulling it out of Romans or um, the New Testament, but from its original time when Habakkuk uh, when God spoke these words to Habakkuk. But um, though this book is 2,600-ish years old, it almost feels modern. And uh, we're going to see how uh, relevant it is with the questions that Habakkuk raises and that I think we all struggle with. So let's read now. We're going to read chapter 1, the whole thing today. A little longer than I anticipated, but I think we need the whole thing. And then I think um, Carl next week uh, will be picking up in chapter one and going into chapter two and tying it all together. I know you can do it. (laughs) Okay. So let's start reading in Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Saw. Isn't that interesting? Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings on not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They will come for violence. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. All king, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk 
responds, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? That's chapter one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so why is this relevant? Now, uh, he's very poetic. You know, Most of the Old Testament passages actually are poetry. I don't know if you recognize it or not. Almost all the prophetic books are poetry. Not modern poetry um, or, or, or rhyming poetry, but um, it's poetry where um, they say one thing, and then they take it another angle, and they keep repeating themselves in different ways to kind of fill it all out. And so the majority of the Old Testament is poetry. And he's very poetic, so it's like, what did he just actually say, you might be asking in some ways, <laughs> okay? Um, but I think there's going to be some good here. So what we're going to look at to understand the relevance of this text is we're going to look at, first of all, what Habakkuk saw, then what he did about it, and then what Habakkuk heard from God in response, and what this all meant, okay? What he saw... He says it right away. It's an oracle that he sees, which is interesting. He says, why do, why do you make me see iniquity? And the word for iniquity in this text is actually like inequity, things that are just totally topsy-turvy in this world, things that are not quite right. Everything's twisted and bent and broken, and there's injustice, and there's violence. And basically, Habakkuk is just watching the 6 o'clock news. Have you ever noticed? But he's not desensitized to all the violence in this world like we are. We're so, it's like, ah, whatever. It's just another murder. It's another knife. When I was living in Baton Rouge a long time ago, I think it was, it was so, there was uh, almost a murder every day in that city in the 1980s. And I was at LSU at the time. And you just, after a while, it's just like, okay, you know, the stabbings and the shootings don't make the news anymore because there's just too many murders. It's just amazing, our society and the violence that we have within our own society, let alone around the world. And he is not desensitized to it. In fact, he, makes, he brings up big questions to God about all of this. He knew the times he was living in. I wonder sometimes if we recognize the time we are living in. Ecclesiastes, in, um, there's some real wisdom in that book. I have preached on Ecclesiastes before. Okay. Um, it, um, and in Ecclesiastes 9, it says, For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, very similar to what Habakkuk said, right? And like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Habakkuk understood he was living in some pretty evil times. Prior, he had some good times. Uh, 
He had lived through what was called King Josiah's reign in Judah, where Josiah, this young little kid on the throne, created a whole reform movement that had swept through and the corruption was eliminated and people started to worship God again. And they, 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 um, the inequities, uh, the exploitation, the issues with all sorts of people were taken away and people were actually uh, treating each other fairly and justly. But then... The reform that seemed to have swept the nation, and you can read about this in, uh, in the book of Kings, um, and I think Chronicles, um, it died when Josiah died. It was about three inches deep. It was pretty shallow in the lives of people. Um, because when he died, his sons took over as king of Judah, and they did evil in God's sight, and the people just went... <coughs> in all different directions. That's when Hosea, or Habakkuk, excuse me, is writing this letter. He saw the, quote, better time, relatively good times, okay? And now he sees how much more wicked they are. Um, there are times in history where things are going pretty good, or relatively good, and most people have a lot of hope that, you know, when I think my parents when I was growing up as a child, um, my parents basically believed that my life and my future was going to be probably better than theirs. That they had gone through some tough times in the United States, born in the 30s into the 40s. They faced childhood during World War II. They were getting out of the Great Depression. They came into the 50s, got married in the 50s, and then started having children. And they were looking towards the future and seeing the progress, um, more, more um, availability of all sorts of things. It wasn't just technology, but just a lot of things in life were improving. And we kind of assume that good times are always here to stay, right? Another time in the history of the United States, um, I think after the Civil War, when we finally rid ourselves of at least the blatant issue of slavery, we were still <laughs> dealing with its aftermath. But from the 1870s through about 1910-ish, there was a period of time when a lot of people saw progress, uh, better, better situations for life in agriculture, in um, society in general, lots of improvements, lots of options for a lot of people. Not everybody, but most people did. But then, the beginning of the 20th century, we saw World War I. That seemed like a very evil time. The whole world was on edge. And then the 1918 to 20, flu pandemic, and then the Great Depression, and World War II, and the Holocaust. Those were tough times, evil times. Where are we now? It's a good question, isn't it? I don't know if as many people have as much hope in the future anymore. That we're, we're having children. Little Liam was born three and a half weeks ago. Woohoo! Congratulations, y'all. And we're still showing hope, but at the same time, we're wondering if our children are going to have as good of a life as we had. 
And uh, in 2009, Timothy Keller did a five-part series on this book. And he brought it out in New York City himself as a pastor there because he saw the housing burst bubble, billions of dollars just disappearing. The majority of people in the United States were wondering what happened and how did everything uh, just fall apart. The 99% were looking and going like, how did this all take place? And it seemed like to him kind of a wicked or evil time that we were going through some tough, lean times after that, and we did. But now we can add <laughs> a few other things to that, right? Um, all the different uh, politicization of everything in our society, the, um, the divisions, the tribalism, uh, the difficulties, the economics, another pandemic, um, issues, existential issues for our world, not just the United States, through climate change and through um, all of the violence that we are seeing around the world, the terrorism that we faced, all of these things are adding up to go, hmm, now. And I think that's why Habakkuk might be just a great book to be in at the moment. Because if we understand what God is saying to Habakkuk, we have a word for our day and time, too. Maybe we'll understand how to live in difficult times. That's part of the relevance. So Habakkuk realized the time he was living in. He called it like it is. And he challenged God on it. So what he did is that he was bold and honest, and he actually challenged God. He said, Lord, in chapter 1, verse 12a, are you not from everlasting? Now, that word there, by the way, is not, um, uh, it comes across in the English as kind of pious and nice, but it really was not at all. Uh, this is one of the most challenging questions in your face to God that anybody has ever asked in all of the Bible. Francis Anderson commented on this. He said, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the Bible. God is not approached with courtesy and respect. Habakkuk's question, while reminding Yahweh that he's eternal, holy, immortal, nevertheless betrays if it doesn't openly express a doubt that is part of the prophet's anguish. It's basically almost sarcastic. And you know what sarcasm is? It's where you're cutting at the flesh of someone. It's as if Habakkuk is trying to cut at God's flesh, if he could do that, and say, I thought you were infinite. I thought you could handle this stuff. What? So Habakkuk is challenging God. That's what he did. But one thing he doesn't do, and he never thought, and that was to walk away from God, to stop obeying God, to stop praying to God. He's not blogging about his, this situation. He's not talking about it to other people. He's not in therapy dealing with this. He is praying to God, and he's wrestling with God, and he's holding on to God through it all. There is no option where he would walk away from God. This is so much different than what people do today. Modern people just tend to write God off at the first time that things don't work out the way we expect. You know, we just dismiss him. Well, how can God be, there be a God and allow bad things to happen to me or whatever? 
and we just dismiss it right away and just move on without God. We don't actually research it. We don't actually ask and wrestle with it. We just spit it out and move on. But Habakkuk doesn't talk about God. He doesn't deal with abstracts. He talks to God and expects God to listen. And he's asking God to kind of square this circle, try to tell me how this is supposed to ever work out. How are you going to rectify all the injustices in this world? How is this happening? Now, so the Bible is filled with a lot of these questions. It's not a book. It's not a dictionary. It's not just a bunch of information. It's not little definitions. It's not just rules. It's no owner's manual. You know? It's not, okay. It's a dialogue from the beginning. And God asks some of the most profound questions, but you are called to ask questions too. Not hypothetical, abstracted questions. Rather, address God directly. Keep in dialogue with him, especially when you're angry or upset or grieving or doubting or struggling. Now, you might go like, whoa, wait a minute. I've never had a pastor tell me to do that. Well, I know, because um, in traditional religious communities, the last thing you're ever supposed to do is question God. <gasps> no, 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 you've got to keep God on your good side. You've got to look like you just believe anyways, and just don't even think, just believe. And there are a number of Christian churches, and not this one, I don't think, where um, that basically believism is what they really believe in. If I just, you just believe it hard enough, it's going to happen. And they almost make faith itself the faith rather than the faith in the God who gives promises and who promises to be there. And that traditional religion almost treats God as if you have to be on pins and needles with him. Don't ask too many questions. Just kind of go along with the flow. Just keep believing. Dismiss. And the Bible again and again says, no, call a thing what it is. Put it right in front of God to let him know. But trust him, even if you don't understand. But challenge him. God is worthy of your questions. But Habakkuk is neither the modernist who just dismisses God and walks away, or the traditionalist who is afraid to say anything to God. He's not going to let God off the hook on this one. And yet... He basically says, God, I cannot figure out what you're doing at all in this world right now. But if I can't figure out trusting you what you're doing, I definitely can't figure out without you in the picture. So what is he doing? I would say he is unconditionally, faithfully wrestling with God. I don't know if you realize this in the Bible, but there are a lot, there's, there's some pretty dark chapters. Um, there are a couple of Psalms, Psalm 88, I think, and Psalm 39, that are just really like uh, the psalmist is saying, just leave me alone, God. Let me just sit in my own darkness right now. I can't handle this. And they don't really make sense. And you go like, oh my goodness, why are they even in the Bible? And there are chapters like Habakkuk, the whole prophet, 
we could have not had this three chapters in the Bible, and I, you, you'd go, well, you know. Or like Jeremiah complains a lot. He's kind of the whining prophet, if you ever read him. He's a young teenager when he gets called, and he just whines a lot. Um, but then there's also Lamentations, a book that we believe Jeremiah wrote, and, of course, the book of Job. Those are just some examples, and they're in the Bible. They're part of God's word. Our struggles are in it. Derek Kidner, who is a, um, a commentator on the Psalms and all these things, says, these prayers, like Psalm 88 and 39, don't make much sense on their own. But the presence of the prayers in the scriptures, he says, witness to how God understands us. He knows how we speak when we're under anguish that we don't always make sense. I bet you as a child said things to your parents because of your anguish or fears or whatever that didn't make much sense at all. I recall a time, my mom might be listening now, um, and uh, when I was in fifth grade, I had to get glasses. And I was so upset that my eyesight was bad. And just about two months before I went in for the exam, my dad, we had a, there was an eclipse of the sun. And he wanted us, being a science teacher, to look at it. And so we had some old negatives and looked at it. I blamed him that he made me look at that through those and caused my bad eyesight. And he accepted that as nonsensical as it was. Do you get it? So why doesn't God just smack Habakkuk upside the head, you know? Smite him a little. Why is this in the Bible? Because I think God preserves these types of prayers. They're precious to him, even when you're angry or upset with him. God says, I'm going to remain your God no matter how bad your attitude might be towards me or how foolish your questions are or how um, limited your understanding and challenges are of me. I'm going to still be your God. I'm going to be faithful to you even when you can't handle it and you don't know what to do with it. You can have it out with me, but you're going to be with me and I'm going to be with you. That's how we face difficult times. We don't dismiss God. We don't write him off. He won't leave us. And we don't fall into simple believisms to kind of just paste over the difficulties or struggles our lives are having or this world is having. We faithfully, unconditionally wrestle with God, just like Habakkuk. So. What did Habakkuk hear from God as a response to his first question? <laughs> God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. <laughs> Basically, Habakkuk, I'm doing something, but you won't believe it. And Habakkuk doesn't. <laughs> yep. How in the world are you taking a more treacherous nation, the most evil nation on this planet at the time, and using it to punish us? 
We're not that bad. <laughs> Maybe I complained a little too much. I don't know, but we're not that bad. Oh, my goodness. Like I said, as a child, I remember as well when I was a kid, um, Dr. Love was my doctor. Can you believe his last name was Love? He's a great guy. I had so many um, allergies and ailments and ear, inner ear infections. I think 30 times my inner ear uh, my ears ruptured. They thought I was going to be deaf. All this stuff was going on just to age two to three, okay? I mean, just, it was incredible what my parents, so that any time my parents took me to the doctor, even though it was for the good, you know what I did? I screamed. I cried. Even when we drove by the doctor's office, I would freak out. Now, it didn't help that the doctor's office was right next to the funeral home, which was right next to the cemetery. <laughs> I know, it is true. In Frankenmuth, where I grew up, doctors loved here, the funeral home was next door and a cemetery next to that. But um, the reality was my parents were doing something good for me, but boy, it was painful. And I bet any parent here has brought their child into a situation and the kid looks, the look, I would love to see it on Johnny's face just because I'd laugh, you know. He's looking at mom and dad going like, what are you doing? How could you? You know, like if you give them vaccines, you know, and they get a shot and it's like, oh, how could this be any good? If we as children have that limited understanding, right? And parents, we're not that much smarter than our kids, but we do have a much broader perspective, right? Just think. The difference between you and your heavenly father in understanding this world. Just think what that difference and how vast it is. It's like a piece of sand, how limited we have to the entire universe, what God has and understands. So if we can, out of love and protection and the good will of our children, do things that are difficult for them to bear at the moment... What do you think God is doing? And we can look a little back in perspective on all this. Habakkuk was stuck in the middle of this difficult time. But we can look back and realize, you know what's fascinating? I don't know if you've thought about it this way. But the children of Israel were taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, where Jeremiah says, you know, build and plant and settle. You know what they did in Babylon? That is where the synagogue was developed. And a lot of other um, wonderful like cultural expressions developed there. And then after 70 years, some of them came back to rebuild Jerusalem, but most Jews stayed in the dispersion. And they were actually then found out throughout the entire world. Then the Greeks came along after that and created a culture that was across all the ethnicities and nations and a language that was common. And then after that came the Roman Empire that built roads, etc. And yes, a lot of atrocities by every one of these nations. And yet, when Jesus shows up on the scene, and when the early church starts to proclaim the resurrection and the good news of Jesus Christ, wherever they went throughout the entire world, there was a synagogue of God-fearers and people who already believed in the one true God who are ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. 
and not just the Jews in the synagogue, but the God-fearers that, as a result. And you will notice in the New Testament, that's how the church grew explosively, was through the network that all started with God using Babylon in a way that Habakkuk couldn't understand at first. Fascinating, isn't it? We, um, we look at uh, places like I was in India in, I think, 2000 and I want to say five. And uh, since, I think, 1967 or 69, no foreign missionaries have been allowed into India. And we say, oh, my goodness, how terrible. But guess what? The Christian church is growing phenomenally because it's an indigenous church. Same with China, when the communists took over China. And all the Western um, missionaries were kicked out. We thought, oh, there goes you know, the whole, guess what? Within the next 100 years, there could be easily 300 million Christians in China because it's become an indigenous faith, a faith of the people. It's not a foreign influence in any form. And it's happening because there are faithful Christians in China. So often, we look at situations and we have such a limited perspective. Mark Krieger uh, shared with me a book, and you're probably thinking of it right now, The Insanity of God. And it's a book about how God works. So what does this all mean? Kind of what we've already stated, but Isaiah put it nice and uh, poetically, another piece of poetry. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does not work on our timetable. God does not work according to our agenda. Thank God he doesn't. Because the way we think we're going to get rid of just, uh, injustices in this world and evil is to, quote, get rid of those people that cause it all. And if God said, I'm going to wipe out every injustice in this world, no one would be left. Not me. But God works so profoundly differently than how we think we're going to solve the situation. <laughs> Don't lean back on that. <laughs> okay. Um, for he comes into this world not as an Alexander the Great or a Nebuchadnezzar to plow over people, not with any protection in himself, but the vulnerability of a little child in Jesus himself. He comes not to enact justice by taking vengeance on all the injustices, but enacting justice by receiving all the injustices into himself, by facing it all, by feeling it all, by experiencing it all. Habakkuk was confounded by one of the big questions of this world, and we're still struggling with it. But the answers we are seeing that the scriptures give is in and through the person of Jesus Christ himself. And do you know that Paul, one of the apostles, actually does quote not just once, but a number of times from Habakkuk. And one of them happens to be when he goes to a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. And this is what he says. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come true about you. And here's Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That's what Jesus does. A work in his day and our days that we're like, what? How do you do that? Jesus is the ultimate example of bringing redemption out of suffering and injustice. He bringing salvation out of facing judgment and light out of the darkness of Good Friday. At the people, people looked at the cross itself, by the way, and it says in Luke that they beat their chests in agony. Another way of saying it would be like, what good is that? Could anything good come from that? How terrible. And yet through that terrible agony, the ultimate Habakkuk asking the ultimate question from the cross, Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why all this injustice? He dies in agony to bring about a true righting of all wrongs in this world. The only way that can be done through the gospel, through forgiveness of sins, through a whole new start, a whole new life. If you haven't figured out, I kind of believe um, we're living in some very difficult times. We might need to call it what it is. Not expect things to just change automatically or get back to normal. I don't know what normal is anymore. Um, how do we do it faithfully? Wrestle with God on it. Pray. Hold on to him. Don't let go. Trust that God is the one who did an amazing work, though Habakkuk couldn't see it, through the whole issue with Babylon. He's the one who does the amazing work, though no disciple could see it, through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Can do what nobody might understand today, what he's doing, and still bring about his kingdom spreading and growing in ways that we've never seen. Because God is faithful, and he loves us even when we are frustrated and angry with him and at questioning him, and we can wrestle with him through it all and still realize that nothing in all creation will ever separate us from God's love. Nothing. And ultimately, he's working it all on his timeline for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, <laughs> this ancient yet so modern prophetic word from Habakkuk. Help us, Lord, to struggle, but more than that, to hold on to you and even take your promises and speak them back to you and say, Lord, somehow you're going to do this. You're going to make this work out. We don't see it right now. Lord, we do see injustices around this world. Right now, we see our brothers and sisters in Haiti that we've worked with in Mission Haiti are facing so much turmoil, the gang violence and the political corruption and the natural disasters. We pray, Lord God, uh, for the pastors in Haiti, 30 of whom have been kidnapped just in the last month, for the 17 um, <clears throat> missionaries from Canada and the United States. We pray for their protection. We pray for your church, Lord. 
that is facing so many obstacles in that nation. We pray, Lord, that you would have um, your way there. There is so much that's been wrong for so long. We ask for your mercy and grace. We lift up to you, O Lord, those who are facing illness and difficulties in our own midst here at Thrive. We pray your healing upon them. We pray that you have us grow closer to you through all these things and that we can walk alongside each other, bear with one another, and love one another as you have loved us, Lord Jesus. You know our campus ministry, Lord. You know um, also our, uh, our work uh, in this community. We pray your blessing and guidance. And when we do face difficulties and obstacles and things that don't seem to go the right way, Lord, we just ask that you would, that, well, that you'd give us a faithfulness to wrestle through those things, to lay them all at your feet, and to, to call on you, even in our weakness, so that your strength is perfected. Lord God, as we uh, move forward in this service, we will uh, again celebrate how you work in mysterious ways, how on the night you were betrayed, you would give us your very self in a most precious and intimate way in the Lord's Supper. We pray, Lord God, that we would receive it uh, for all it's worth, and Lord, that you would, uh, we lay down all our sinfulness, we confess all that to you, knowing that you are faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray, Lord, too, that you would take our offerings that we will uh, collect in just a moment and use them, Lord, for your kingdom's sake in a world that doesn't make a lot of sense anymore, Lord. We know that you will ultimately work all things for good, and we want you to use us to help bring a little more of that about in our ministry here at Thrive to this community and world. All these things we pray in the name that we're going to hold on to forever and celebrate always the name of Jesus. 